Wasn't that exciting? Conversations that matter, like it on Facebook, follow them on YouTube, is another one of the beautiful groups that we have met throughout this time. I thank God for Dr. Michael Brown, Brother Keith Collins. I thank God for Revival TV Ministry coming out of Copeland's ministry. I thank God for Bevelyn Beatty, all of these folks from around the country who have supported and told the story of what's happened here. And now this Brother John with Conversations That Matter is doing a documentary and it's a similar story to what he faced when he was in seminary. And so he uh, got in touch with Juan. So tell us what you're doing, what your story is, and why you do conversations that matter. Yeah, first I'd like to say thank you for having us. And I know there's been cameras kind of going around here. So um, you, guys, you guys are not worldly woke. You're Jesus woke. That's what I realized. <laughs> And, uh, and I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm a reform guy. Some of you know what that means. Some of you don't. But I'm just now waking up and getting into the groove of it. And I appreciate it. You've encouraged my heart. Uh, the heart of your pastor is just incredible. We were downtown watching uh, pastor and then Juan do some preaching. And uh, the boldness is infectious. Uh, it spreads uh, faster than COVID, which is what we want. Uh, so... Um, I, want, I wanted to just read for you, so this is from Scripture. This is uh, from the book of 1 Peter chapter 4, and it's a, it's a verse that I've thought a few times as we've been filming. We were just at Nini's earlier this morning. That was emotional, um, but I'm going to read for you from verse 12. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though something strange were happening to you. Does everyone feel like something strange is happening? It's actually not that strange. 2,000 years ago, someone said, it's not that strange. Uh, you don't think it's strange. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may be also rejoice and be overjoyed. We're supposed to have joy. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, here's the warning. It says, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. And that's exactly the story that we're telling here. This is the story of Nini's Dally, the story that, uh, of Juan, and we've just appreciated it so much. We're looking forward, hopefully, in a month or two to get this online. We're going to have the gospel it's going to show the hypocrisy of the BLM movement and the social justice movement. Uh, it's going to show the hypocrisy of, uh, I'm just going to say it, the COVID Nazis, because that's who they are. And they want to suppress Christians who want to come and worship Christ. And so we're not going to let that happen. We're going to expose them at every turn, and we're going to share the alternative, which is the good news of Jesus Christ. If we repent, if we turn to him from our sin, then even if we die from COVID or whatever it is, because we're all going to die, we have a place with him. So you want to say something, Juan, brother? That's you, baby. Oh, man, I just wanted to, well, just piggyback on what this brother's saying. I, I don't look, I was just saying earlier, we don't look at anything uh, that happened at Nini's or that happened with our family or anything like that with our heads down in shame. We give glory to Jesus. Amen. We are stoked to be persecuted for Christ. I've actually said it before, and I'll say it again. The only thing that I wish I could do differently is that I would go harder for Jesus even more, even harder for Jesus again. So thank you so much, guys. Amen. 
Let's just pray for this project and for what's going on in Dallas. We have Pastor Jared leaving tomorrow to start this church that they've already established. So let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for what you're doing through the Riascos family, now the walkers who are in Dallas. We pray that this church will be a, a beacon of light and hope to that community. We, Lord, we know, Lord, you use all things for good. And they had a choice to come back and restart their lives, but they felt you moved them out there for a new season, for a new group of people. So, Lord, we ask you to bless them and keep, keep them safe. And even today, right now, while Jose is dealing with something in his stomach, heal him, restore him in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. And, Lord, we thank you for conversations that matter, hearing their heart that their supporters actually funded the, their trip out here and the lodging and the food and the rental equipment for the camera so they could put this story uh, out there for the people to hear. We pray that they'll be blessed. All the supporters will receive a hundredfold the seeds that they've sown and that the story that's come from here will be your story for your glory in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Let's bless the Lord. He's using us. He's using us. Amen. Let's go to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. He's using us in our simple uh, slingshot in stone. Oftentimes, I feel like I'm David facing Goliath. Does anybody else feel like that? And a lot of us, we're going through it right now. Next story could be about what you face on your job, from your family. But no matter what, let us remain faithful. Let's remain faithful to God until the end and give, give him our lives. One preacher said it like this, I have given my life to Jesus, and if he wants to spend my life on bubblegum, he can. He can spend my life on bubblegum if he wants, but I know he's got something much better for me in the future. But how many know if we are a servant of the Lord, he could tell you to go serve wherever. Because he says to his servants to go when they need to go. But the Lord, I believe, has our best intentions in mind, and he wants us to be living witnesses in this last generation. So we're going now through the book of Revelation verse by verse. I want to review what we've already gone through. Everybody say, review is for you. Amen. So let's go to chapter 1, verse 1, and then today's specific message is going to be the first and the last. How many have heard Jesus be called the first and the last before? Amen. You're going to see where that comes from. But let's make sure we go over review because you guys have been patient with me, and I'm going to be patient with you. So I'm going to make sure everybody understands this because the book of Revelation, before it's revealing the Antichrist, it's revealing Jesus. Before it's revealing judgment and all of those things happening on the earth, it's revealing Jesus. The book of Revelation is all about who? Jesus. That's right. The book of Revelation is not about judgment, first and foremost. It's not about the Antichrist, first and foremost. The book of Revelation is first and foremost about your Lord and Savior, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who loves us so much uh, that he would give his life for us to save us and redeem us. And so when we look to the end and we see all of this scary stuff happening, we're supposed to know, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Amen. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff. They comfort me. Verse 1, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to, his, to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud. Everybody say aloud. Amen. Thank you. Allowed the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it. Somebody say, I'm blessed. Amen. And take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. We started off last week with these verses. I just want to review and then go to the rest of the verses because I believe this is going to be building upon a foundation. It's the revelation from Jesus about Jesus, and he sends his angels, uh, his angels, singular. Now, notice that if you own angels, you are equal to God according to the Bible. 
No one else in the scripture can take possession of angels and say, that's my angel. I know what we mean when we say, I have a guardian angel or these angels help me. That's one thing, but that does not mean you own them or you are over them. Let me give you an example here. If you go into a restaurant, how many know a waiter or waitress will serve you, but you're not their boss? Because everybody get you go there and they're serving you, but they don't belong to you in that sense. They are the servants of that job. And so in the Bible, let's go there quickly, Psalm 104.4, there is only one being that says, I have angels and they belong to me. And that is God. So right at the beginning, we're realizing if Jesus is sending his angel, Jesus has an angel, and he can say, you go over here. Jesus must be equal with the Father. He is not a lesser being than God. He is God himself. Now remember, God is the Father, Son, and Spirit. These three are one in nature, but not one in personhood, each one having their own personality. Speaking about God, he makes winds or spirits, his messengers or angels, depending on what translation you're going to read, flames of fire, his servants. So the angels belong to who? God. Now let's go to the end of the book. Let's go to the notes first so I can get the reference, please. Revelation uh, chapter 22, verse 16. Now go to that passage as well. And you'll see clearly at the end of the book, Jesus says, I sent my angel to you, John. John, that's my angel. So who does this angel belong to? Jesus, right? Now, that's important to understand because that is ownership and that is divine authority. I, Jesus, have sent whose angel? my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. Amen. Let's go back to the notes. In those first verses, what are we learning? Jesus has angels. Jesus has sent one of those angels to John to give a testimony about things that are going to take place. Now, when we think of near in our world, we think of a couple days, a couple weeks, maybe a few months. This has been over 2,000 years. So what do we do with that where it says near? We don't have to turn there, but remember the reference, Psalm 90, verse 4 says, a day to the Lord is like a thousand years to us. So a thousand years have passed by, and God's just like, that's just a day. So since Jesus has been on the earth, that's just a weekend, two days. He's coming back on the third day. That's what we believe. On the third day, which we are now starting the third millennium since he's been gone, Jesus is going to come back. How soon? That depends on who you ask and what book they're selling, okay? Half T's there. But right now, I would say in our lifetimes, if you're asking me personally, but I would not be discouraged over the nearness there because that nearness is actually supposed to have us ready for the imminent return of Jesus. This is the any moment doctrine, that we are supposed to be ready any moment for Jesus, and that's what the disciples lived with was that urgency. They were not supposed to look off in the future and go, well, maybe, maybe not, he'll come back. Every disciple in every age has been commanded to wait for Jesus to come and to be there when, he's, uh, when he comes and to be there ready. How many are going to be ready when Jesus comes? Serving him, living for him, and it will not catch you as a surprise, right? Amen. And then the Bible talks about the word of God and the testimony of Jesus is what this message was meant for the churches to have. They were supposed to have the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And what better time for us to have that in the church today? You need the word of God and you need the testimony of Jesus. You need to know what this word says. You need to work the word so it will work for you. Carry the word and it will carry you. Amen. You need to have the word of God hidden in your heart. Let it be a light into your path because everything that's coming at us is a battle of the mind. It's a battle of the worldviews. It's how we see the world. And a lot of times they'll point to the Bible and they'll say, well, the word of God, what you call the word of God, that Bible, that was written by men so we can't trust it. What should you ask them back? What book are you trusting and who was it written by? 
You know, are you reading Marx? Are you reading a Marxist book? You trust that man? Come on. I'll trust the God man who rose from the dead. I'll trust that story over any of these other stories because history is really his story and what God is doing on the earth. So when people try to be all like, like education, you know, like education, like smarty pants, well, that Bible was written by men. Yeah, math books are written by men, and they're also right. Just because something is written by a man or a woman doesn't mean it's necessarily right or wrong. Evaluate it, research it, test it for what its claims are, and then decide if it's right or wrong. Don't just say, it's written by a man, I'm throwing it in the trash, because how many know all books would go in the trash? Because I don't know about you, I'm not reading books written by animals or aliens. Last time I checked, there are no books written by animals or aliens. Those are my only choices I can think of right now, uh, or angels. Uh, books generally are written by human beings, and you need to judge them based on their content. And as we get into this book, this prophetic book, which talks a lot about the future, I believe you will see things that are tested, tried, and true. He says, blessed are those who read it and hear it. Let us do that. In our private times, continue to study the word of God. Listen to it as I do even from the audio Bible. And as you're at home, read some of it out loud and sing some of it. There are songs in here. That's pretty cool. A lot of times we don't think of the book of Revelation having songs. But how many know some great worship songs here? Those will come up and you're going to say, man, I've heard those before in church. Yeah, because that's where they got it from. Going on now to verse 4. Verse 4 teaches us what we need to know about John as an apostle. So he's going to interject here and say, John, to the seven churches. This is a typical greeting of apostles to their churches. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. How many are ready for this now? Okay, those of you who were here last week, are you ready? We're going to all pass, amen? We're passing the questions on the quiz that are coming up right now. Okay, let's just go to the basics. John, he's the apostle. John was the youngest of the disciples. Now he's the oldest, last living. We're going to hear that he's exiled on an island called Patmos. And church history tells us the reason why that happened, they tried to kill him by boiling him alive. God kept him. And then he escaped. And then they recaptured him and said, we're not going to mess with you anymore. Just going to exile you. Just stay there until you die. That was a popular form of, you know, uh, taking people out of their, their culture at that time, being exiled. This is where John is going to be at. So he's introducing himself. And he's telling us what the, who the audience is, which is the seven churches. Let us always remember this. The book of Revelation is not primarily to scare the sinner. It can be used to scare the hell out of the sinner because how many know they need some hell scared out of them? This is scary. Yes, it should scare the hell right out of you. But it's not meant for the sinner. How many know it's not meant for the sinner? It's meant for us as the church. It's meant for us as Christians to see our awesome Lord and Savior Jesus win the battle against Satan and his forces of evil. Now track with me here. We believe God is the Father, Son, the Spirit from other letters. John has wrote a gospel. He's also wrote other letters. We already know who these persons are, but listen to how he describes the Father. He says the Father is the one who is, who was, and who is to come. He now lists the Son by his earthly name and his messianic title. Jesus is the earthly name of God in the flesh. So before he came in the flesh, he was not known by Jesus. He was known as the Word or the Word of the Lord. Everybody tracking with me there? He was given the name of Jesus, you know, via Mary. He was given that name at his birth to represent God saving his people. And Christ is not his last name. It's his role as a king. The Messiah, Christ, the same word Greek, Hebrew. Greek is Christ. Messiah, Hebrew. 
which means the anointed one. And when you hear the anointed one, you're supposed to go back to David and remember that God made special promises to David when he was anointed and then when he was given coronation as king. Then we are told about the seven spirits of God, or rather the seven spirits then Jesus. And the seven spirits, if you remember, I talked to you about this, are seven manifestations of the one spirit. Now go to that screen that I have up, please, of the menorah, because as I went back and studied more, I want to make sure I can show you both ways. Remember that I showed you when we counted in what is in our translation of Isaiah, you only count six. Does everybody remember that? Okay. But there are seven manifestations of the Spirit. Let's just go there so they can see it. Isaiah chapter 11. And then I want to make sure you can see what we're talking about, those who might not have been here. And there's another translation called the Septuagint, which has a literal seven. But here's six. But I want to show you how even people have made seven out of this. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom, understanding, Spirit of counsel, might, the Spirit of knowledge, and fear of the Lord. How many know we got six right there? Okay, amen. Everybody's on that. That's awesome. We can keep moving. But the Spirit of the Lord is not named by those who are counting like me as one of the seven. Now, go to that picture of the menorah, and let me show you how some people use the translations that we have to still find the seven without going to another translation that's not as popular but is just as old called the Septuagint. Now, notice here in the menorah there is a center candle, center, and then there's three sets of two. Does everybody see that? Now, with that in mind, go back to Isaiah and see how some people see it without appealing to the Septuagint. The Spirit of the Lord being the first and the center one. Now, the three sets of two, wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and fear. How many got it? Go back to the menorah. That's how some people will count the seven because others will say, you know what, Joe, I don't like that sometimes translations have what we call a variant, a word here or not there. Which, which one is the more legit? And so we as Christians go, we know it's there, and we, uh, we know that this is where the, uh, the, the manuscript differs. We know it's there. So it's not like somebody took it and changed it on us, and now we have to research and find, does, does the word belong there or does it not belong there? And here's another thing. It doesn't change the meaning. Can I get an amen to that? There's no variant where we're wrestling with as scholars. Why does the Septuagint have this? Why does the Masoretic have, not have it? We're wrestling, but it's not changing meaning. And what I love about Christian scholars is that generally when there is something like we're seeing as a meaning here of seven, they can work it out both ways. Now go to the Septuagint, which I prefer, and I have reasons for that, which will take us down a whole other discussion of why I think the Septuagint is a better translation. But I wanted to show you to feel comfortable even with how you have it in your Old Testament. Now notice the same words are used except here at the end in the Septuagint, it has the word piety or godliness. So if you're going to count the way I count, you're not going to count the Spirit of the Lord. You're just going to count seven manifestations, and piety is going to be the seventh. If you're going to count the way other scholars count, you're going to count the Spirit of the Lord in the middle with the three sets of two on the side. And I can see you guys like that one a lot better, so we'll just go with that for this. Isn't that pretty cool, the one in the center and the two set, uh, three sets of two? Okay, back to the notes, please. What we're supposed to get out of this, though, is that there's not seven Holy Spirits. There's seven manifestations of the Spirit of God. 
Now, when we go to Jesus, faithful witness, that's easy. Everybody understands he was true to what the Father told him. This next phrase right here, firstborn from the dead, has caused a lot of confusion over the years. And then the last one, the ruler of all the kings of the earth, everybody's good with. It's the one in the middle that everybody gets stuck with. When they hear firstborn from among the dead, what they think is, is that Jesus as a firstborn is like my firstborn created at a certain time and then my firstborn. So my firstborn child is Bethany. She did not exist until she was conceived with her mom and dad on a lonely old night listening to some R. Kelly. Come on. Some Julio Iglesias. I can be your hero, baby. You know, dancing with her all night long and doing what God said married people could do, and it's blessed. Hallelujah. We've done it a bunch of times. That's why we have six. So some people think that that's Jesus. And I know it sounds funny, and it even is blasphemy, but we have to hear it so we can respond to it. There are Mormons who say the Father came to Mary and said, let's get it on. And that's how Jesus was born. It's blasphemous and funny, and it's crazy, isn't it? But they literally believe in a physical Father having union with Mary and Jesus coming out. That is wrong. That is not what firstborn means. The second thing is that Jehovah Witnesses are those like them that think that Jesus is created by the Father, not through sexual intercourse, but as his first created being. And that's why he's the son, because he's the first one the Father created. And now through Jesus, everybody else gets created. But nonetheless, Jesus is still a created being. That is not what it means. So the very first thing we have to do before we even understand from the dead, we just need to understand firstborn. And so here's the question. I'm going to give you two options, multiple choice. Was Jesus declared the Father's firstborn at his incarnation or birth, whatever you want to prefer for this point A, or was he declared the firstborn at his resurrection? A is at his incarnation or birth. How many think that's when he was declared the firstborn? Okay, nobody raising their hands. That might be a good sign. Let's go. How many believe he was declared the first? Somebody's like, I'm not raising my hands either way. I just don't trust my pastor, and I don't want to look dumb. He'll call on me. I don't want to make anybody look dumb. I want to be a good teacher, okay? So be afraid to raise your hands. How many believe it's B at his resurrection? Okay, that would actually be the right answer. The rest of you are still scared. Why are you guys scared? I need to see hands raising up. It doesn't work unless you work with me. Let's go to Acts chapter 13, verse 32, and understand that firstborn comes at a time in somebody's life. David was declared God's firstborn at his coronation. David was not the firstborn of Jesse. He was actually the last. And he wasn't declared God's firstborn even when he was anointed. He was declared the firstborn when he took the kingship and began to rule and reign. You're going to see why that's so important because Jesus is fulfilling the type and shadow of what David was. So these terms that Jesus has as the fulfillment were once types and shadows applied to David. Listen to Paul preaching the gospel, though. We tell you the good news. That means gospel. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Somebody say, raising up Jesus. Amen. As it is written in the second psalm, David wrote this about himself as God was blessing him to be coronated as king. You are my son. Today I've become your father. So David's writing down that this day when he was coronated as king, God said to him, David, you are my son. Today I'm your father. Is everybody tracking here? Now Paul says that actually applies to Jesus in the fullness. The father is looking at Jesus going, today you are my son. Uh, excuse me, you are my son today. Everybody say today. 
Thank you. Today, today I have become your father. Now look at verse 34. God raised him from the dead so that he'll never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you, talking about Jesus, the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So everybody, get this. Jesus was declared God's son at his resurrection. Now I'm going to show you in Psalm how that works. Let's go back to the notes. Turn with me to the book of Psalm. Uh, chapter 89, verse 27. Did the Father declare Jesus as his son at baptism? Absolutely. Did the Father declare Jesus as his son at the mountain of transfiguration? Yes. All of these were prophetic to what was going to be the day, the actual day he became his son. Once again, this is talking about David, but apply it to Jesus. That's why Jesus is the son of who? David, the son of David, in the line of David. Sorry, I tricked you. He's also the son of God. But according to the, the earthly line he came from with Mary and his adoptive father, Joseph, what lineage is he from? The line of David, the line of Judah. He said, I will appoint him to be my firstborn and most exalted of the kings of the earth. I will maintain my love to him for how long? For how long? Forever. Thank you. And my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure. So understand the connection between David and Jesus now with firstborn. David is appointed firstborn, appointed that day to be the firstborn. He was the lastborn out of Jesse's house, but now he's being appointed firstborn. Same thing with Jesus. He is not the firstborn of humanity. Remember, he comes long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But what is he being appointed as? The firstborn from the dead. The first one resurrected with glory and power. That's why I go back to the notes, read it in Revelation. That phrase now fits together. What is he the firstborn? If you could swipe it over, good sir, please. What is he the firstborn over? Firstborn from the dead. Go to Colossians 1.18. Paul summarizes it again. So now if somebody says to you, oh, Jesus, firstborn, that means he's only begotten. That means the Father created him at some time, and now that means he has a start of his, you know, his nature. He hasn't always existed. That's not what firstborn means. That's not what only begotten means. What it means is he is the unique Monogenous in the Greek, only begotten, means he's the only one out of the God nature, Father, Son, and Spirit, that has come in the flesh. There's no one like him. The Father did not come in the flesh. The Spirit did not come in the flesh. That's what it means. He's only begotten. When it says he is firstborn, it's not first to have flesh. Adam already had flesh. All these other people had flesh. He's the first one for his flesh to be glorified and raised up. Go to verse 16, and you'll see it clearly, because sometimes people get confused with Paul's but with Paul's understanding, we'll start in verse 15. Thank you. The Son is the image of the invisible God. Even though we are made in the image of God, we are not the fullness of his image. We are but a reflection of his image. And I'll get to that in a little bit, how in Christ now we get the fullness. But Jesus is the fullness of the image of God. He's the firstborn over all creation. So then somebody goes, well, that means first created. No, it doesn't. Firstborn over all creation, meaning no creation has ever been raised from the dead like Jesus. When Lazarus died and he was raised from the dead, he did not get glor glorified flesh. When Elijah and Enoch ascended to heaven with glorified flesh, they did not get it for eternal. They got it for a temporary to be in heaven. I believe they're going to be the two witnesses because the Bible says all men are appointed once unto die. So they're going to die in a flesh, but they're allowed to come in temporarily. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created. Well, that right there, if you don't understand the logic of Paul about what we're going to get into, just that right there should help you understand. He cannot be created if he created everything. 
Okay, he cannot be created if he created everything because he didn't create himself. For in him all things were created, things in heaven or on earth. Come on, get ready for this. It's coming. Visible or what? Invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Even just that is another a sign of his divinity. It's not just through him like he's a vessel God uses. Because maybe God could use us to create other things. But he's not only used to create by the Father, that, but that the very things they are, that he's creating are directly for him. And the Bible says God will not share his glory with his, another. That's very important. So the very fact that creation is for him, that is once again making him equal with God and his authority. Verse 17, he's before all things. In him all things hold together, and he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from what? From among the dead. So that in what? In everything he might have supremacy. Now look at verse 19, clarifying it with verse 15. Because somebody may say, well, yeah, mankind's made in the image of God. No, not in the way Jesus is God in the flesh. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Let's go back to the notes, please. And now go to the pictures. Okay, let's show the picture. So everybody ready for the quiz now? Okay, uncreated creator or everything created. What side does Jesus belong on? Is he an uncreated creator or is he a created something with everything else? Uncreated creator. And I put another verse in here to help us. Through him, John 1, 3, talking about the word, also known as the son of God, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. That should settle it, right? But we also hear in Paul's writings, Colossians, that he's the image of the invisible God and all things were created by him. So now let's go to the second chart that you guys saw last week. Some of them in the first service didn't get it. But now it's simple. Whoever sees it this way is incorrect. If you could scroll up a little bit more, please, so we could see it. Thank you. Whoever sees the uncreated God as only the Father is wrong. Because what do they have to do with Jesus now? They say Jesus is the first of his creation. They're going to start having contradictions. Because he, Jesus, created everything visible or invisible. And if Jesus created, uh, is created first by God and is the creator of everything visible and invisible, what is he? Because a being can only exist as invisible or visible. Does everybody get that? I know it messes with their mind, visible or invisible. Which one is the, I don't know. Come on, help me. Let's get it here. If Jesus is created by the Father, Father goes, I'm creating you at that moment. Can Jesus be anything other than visible or invisible? At that moment of creation, the Father, let's, let's, let's work out their logic that confuses us, and we have to go back to the truth, but let's, let's untie this knot. If the Father were to create Jesus and say, I've created you, Jesus, at that moment, can Jesus be something other than visible or invisible? No, he either has to be a visible thing that was just created or an invisible thing. But hold up. The Bible says he, Jesus, created all visible and invisible things. So what is left? If, if you're not a created, visible or invisible thing, the only thing that's left is a creator. So where is Jesus? With the Father. Now, is the, is the Father, Son, and Spirit also invisible to our eyes? Yes, but they're not created beings. Angels are invisible created beings. Animals are visible created beings. Those are examples of visible and invisible. Anything created has to now fit into that category after God creates it. Here's the other one. If Jesus creates all things in heaven and creates all things on earth, where would he be when God created him? He couldn't exist anywhere. Because think about it. Now the Father goes, I create Jesus. Where's Jesus going to be? He can't be in heaven because Jesus creates heaven and everything in heaven. He can't be on earth. Jesus creates earth and everything on earth. 
Do you get the logic of the scriptures? Remember, it's Paul that God is using, so Paul has to understand this, but it's coming from Jesus, inspiring scripture to the apostles. We are supposed to walk away from John and Colossians, understanding that Jesus is the uncreated creator, equal with the Father, Son, and the Spirit, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So when we go back to the notes in Revelation, please, when we are told that Jesus is the firstborn. If we could go to the scriptures, uh, scroll up for me, please. Uh, it's going to be up. When we hear that Jesus, uh, it, uh, in the first couple of verses, thank you. When we hear that he is the firstborn from the dead, we are not supposed to get thrown off by everything else we know. When we hear that Jesus has a God, we're not supposed to get thrown off. Why? Because if he's firstborn, what is he firstborn of? The dead. Resurrection. Makes perfect sense to me. When we get to the point where right now in verse 6 it says, uh, to him, let's, let's read this whole passage right here. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you, who, uh, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn of, uh, from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. We're not supposed to get thrown off by that. We're supposed to understand we know how he's the firstborn. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve what? Come on, to serve what? His God and what? Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. We're not supposed to be thrown off by that. Why? Because when the Son became a man, as a man, he worships God and he serves God. Do you want God in the flesh to be an atheist and say, I have no God? The Bible says God is the God of all flesh. When the Son takes on flesh and lives among us, he's going to say, that's my God. That's my Father. But how many know before he took on flesh, he didn't have that role. He was equal with this. He still was equal in the flesh. But before he took on flesh and had to show us how to worship and pray and do all those things, how many know in heaven he's equal with the Father? It's obvious he's equal with the Spirit. He's in the same nature. That's why when the angels see him, they know who he is. Have you come now to torment us? The judgment of the scriptures is always left to the God of the Bible. There is nobody in the Old Testament torturing and tormenting demons and casting them down except the God of the Bible through what he could do with his angels. But the, the, uh, the power source is always God. And they don't treat him like Michael sent on an assignment. They say, you are the one that's going to chain us and do all this. You are the one that has the authority. We know who you are. And he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Why? Because before he came on the earth, he is equal with the Father in his nature. The, the other angelic beings recognize that. He has all of the worship as God, the Father, the Spirit has. But what changes when he takes on flesh? He lives as a man. He's still God. He has not left his divinity. He's just added humanity. Understand that. If you go into uh, uh, the space and you put on a spacesuit, have you left your humanity as you now become a spaceman? And you could take it off if you wanted to and still be a man or a woman without a spacesuit, right? Jesus took on flesh and could have taken it off. But what we understand is that since he's the firstborn from among the dead, he has kept the flesh. Now, this is the revelation of the gospel. How many have heard things like in Christ as you've read the book of Ephesians or were in him and these kinds of terminology? The reason why, has anybody heard that before? Let's just get an example here. Okay, why is that so important? Because now because God took on 
on flesh and it has been exalted and it has been glorified. We who are now in Christ get an exalted, glorified body. We now get to become partakers of the divine nature and the mediation is between the God-man and humanity with his Father. So if Jesus at any time ditched the flesh and said, I'm going to go back to just being a spirit being, we would get left out of that exchange of mediation. The mediation is forever attached to Jesus' flesh. So as long as you want to be glorified, how many want to have a resurrected body and be glorified, as Romans says? How many want to partake of the divine nature? You have to have the doctrine of the eternal now, moving forward eternally. You have to have the doctrine of him eternally inhabiting the flesh that was crucified. It is now glorified. He doesn't need to eat. He doesn't have to, you know, sleep or anything. He has a glorified body, but nonetheless, it is a body that has human nature with it. So he's 100% man, 100% God. And that's why he's still serving God, his Father. And so if you go deep with this, you'll understand what Jesus did as a servant. Not only did Jesus as a servant, uh, not only did Jesus take the role of a servant in his incarnation, but now for eternity, Jesus will serve his Father as the God-man. Isn't that wonderful when you think about the humility of our, of our Savior? Why did he do that? To save humanity. Remember, we sinned in our bodies. Our bodies deserve death. Our souls deserved eternal separation from God, but God sent his son to bring us back in union. So there is one God and one mediator between man and God, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Amen? Okay, let's keep going. That was all review. We've done it. You guys passed. Let's give it up today for Metro Praise. You guys did amazing. Okay, now let's go to verse 7. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. And everybody said, Amen. Now, who's that speaking of right there? Who, are the one, who is the one that was pierced that's coming back on the clouds? Jesus. Now, I want you to remember that because this is going to be another sign of Jesus' divinity. Let's go to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. As he ascended to heaven in the clouds, and the angels, I mean, uh, the disciples kept looking up. What did the angels say back to them? He's going to come back the same way he came, right? On clouds. Now we get our first quote from Daniel, and Daniel's going to be the most quoted book of the book of Revelation. So look forward to Daniel's, uh, you know, Daniel's prophecies coming to pass in the book of Revelation. Daniel is having a vision, okay? And uh, what verse are we in here? Daniel 16, uh, Daniel 7, 16. Go back to the notes. Let's make sure we got the right reference there. Yeah, 7, 13, brother. Let's go to 7, 13, please. Chapter 7, verse 13. You got to scroll up. Now Daniel had a night vision. He said, in my night vision I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Somebody say, that's my Jesus. Amen. Amen. That's our Jesus. Now notice this. In a lot of Bible studies, Christians will say, that Jesus being called Son of Man speaks to his humanity, but Son of God to his divinity. That is not necessarily true. David, who he called, excuse me, Daniel, who he calls the Son of Man, is a divine title. What did Jesus refer to himself the most as on the earth? 
the son of man, the son of man, the son of man. That doesn't doesn't just mean I'm a son from a man, man. That's not what it just means. Like people take it like that, they miss the whole point. The son of man is a character in the prophecies of Daniel that has the same authority as the ancient of days. Now here's where somebody might say back to, well, hold on. If Jesus is God and he's always been God and there's just a time he comes on the flesh and he serves, and even let's say he serves even after uh, the, t- the time in the, you know, on the earth, why is he now being given things? Wouldn't he already have it? Why does Jesus need to be given authority? If he's the son, he should just go back to his authority. If he has, uh, you know, why does he need to be given glory? Doesn't he just go back to the glory? Now that's exactly a question that's answered in John chapter 17. If you notice Jesus' prayer, the real Lord's prayer, the Our Father is for us, the Lord's prayer is when he prays. And John 17. He says, Father, give me back the glory that I once had with you. So that is amazing to go back to that, that when people ask that, say, hold on, that's actually in a passage where he's returning to something he's already put to the side, not putting aside his divinity, but his authority, power, and all of that. He's laying aside not his divinity, but his privileges as God, okay? But now watch this. What is the purpose of the Son of Man being given all of these things if the Son already had it before he became man? Get it? Because man lost it. The son always had it. Man had it and lost it. The son of man gets it back. The son, I'm going to say it one more time. The son of God always had authority, always knew all things, was in power, had all power. But man had once had sovereign authority and power over earth, the kingdoms over the earth. But we lost it, so the son became a Man, the son of man, then gains it back through the redemption on the cross. And now he's being coronated at his resurrection. That's where he's being called the firstborn. Now one like us is there. So everybody get this. We do worship flesh, but it's only the flesh of Jesus. We do worship a man, but it's the God-man Jesus. We are not idolaters of the flesh of people, but we understand that God became man like us as a king in the line of David so that he might restore to us all that we lost and we might share in his kingdom. So that's why in Matthew 28, he goes, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me, now go. We are kingdom ambassadors on behalf of Christ, telling the world to be reconciled to him because he's coming as a conquering king and all nations are going to bow before him and serve him. Amen? Amen. Going back to the notes in Revelation. Uh, did we lose? We lost Revelation. If you can find it back on the notes, let's, let's go to our scriptures. Now notice this. It says, look, he is coming with the clouds. Now we know that is the Son of Man. What is the next thing that we see there? It says, and every eye will see him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. Once again, who is the one that was pierced that they're going to see? What's his name? Jesus. Now go to the book of Zechariah. Go to the book of Zechariah. I believe it's going to be Zechariah 12. I wish I memorized all my notes, but uh, I have it up there whenever we get it. Zechariah chapter 12 is going to tell us who we're actually going to see. Look at this. Now, you know we talk a lot about Mormons and, you know, Muslims are different faiths. But this one is great for the Jewish believer. Now, remember, or um, I should say the Jewish person, because we don't want to confuse the term believer with a Christian, because normally believers are called Christians. But did you know that Jews are the only ones that don't have to change religion to become a Christian? All they have to do is accept Christ as the Messiah. 
That's all they have to do. Muslims can't, you can't be a Muslim Christian. You can't be a Buddhist Christian, but you can be a Messianic Jew, a, a Jew who believes in the Messiah. So when we look to this scripture, this is actually a beautiful one for our Jewish friends, as I think is a better way to refer to them, and those who believe in the Jewish faith. Look at Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1. It says, a prophecy, the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Now notice who's going to start talking here. The Lord. Yahweh in the Hebrew, or Jehovah as some people translate it. The Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth, and who forms the human spirit within a person declares. How many know when God starts talking like that, you start listening? Who stretches the heavens. They're still trying to find the bounds of the known universe. Amen. He said, let there be light, and he said, never let it stop. It is moving, the speed of light. All of these things are happening around us. He has made the foundation of the earth. He puts the human spirit in us. That's what makes us different than animals. Okay, now notice he begins talking. Follow him down, uh, what Jesus is saying, all the way down to verse 10. I gave it away. I said Jesus, but follow it down all the way to what the Lord is saying in verse 10. Let's keep going. Verse 10. Notice the quote that we just heard from the book of Revelation. And I will pour out on the house of David and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. So even though those who get confused with, uh, you know, the breaks and paragraphs in our versions, it's clear who's speaking. Who's the only one who can pour out the Holy Spirit on people? It's still got to be the Lord. But I showed you in verse 1, that's who starts the prophecy, right? Now notice this, the Lord, Yahweh, they will look on me. The one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly. Notice that now God speaks about himself and what you're going to do to him. We literally pierced Yahweh in the flesh. This is for a Jew. All you have to do is ask a Jew a lot of different questions like this, and they'll start to see the revelation of Christ. Because remember, all of our apostles were Jews, and they were not convinced of Christianity because of paganism. They wanted nothing to do with paganism. They were convinced of Christianity because of Judaism and what they had learned. So here the Lord says, you're going to see me who you have pierced, and you're going to look on me and mourn bitterly. This is Yahweh. Who is the person that came down in the flesh that we pierced? Was it the Father? Was it the Spirit? No, it was Jesus that came into the flesh. I'm going to show you two other understandings of the Lord coming into the flesh, okay? Go to Genesis 18, verse 1, and then we'll go uh, to Genesis 19 and Isaiah 6. I just want to show you this is a familiar concept with the Jewish people, and these titles we should take very serious when Jesus says this about himself. He says, I am coming with the clouds of heaven, and they will see the one whom they've pierced. These are all showing us who Jesus is. Verse 18 says, who appeared to Abraham? The Lord appeared to Abraham. Now put up in the other text right there, in the other box, John 1.18. Here's what we say back to the Jewish people. John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God. Okay? And it says the same thing in the book of Exodus. We could show them. But, but highlight verse 18. No one has ever what? Seen God. Okay, now go back to, uh, go back to Genesis 18. The Lord what? Appeared to Abraham. Well, now we got a contradiction, don't we? So this has to be someone other than the Father. Because go back to John 1.18. It says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So who did the patriarchs not see? They did not see who? The Father. But who did they see? 
the son, and you know, Jesus got that name, the son, uh, the son got the name Jesus at his birth via Mary, as we said before, so he's known as the son. If you want to look at his pre-incarnation, you can call him Jesus as well. That's okay. The, the New Testament does. But just so you can understand, father and son, father and son. We have not seen the father, but who have we seen? The son. Now, go to Genesis, back to Genesis. Go to Genesis 19. The Bible says he appears with two angels. The two angels go to Sodom and Gomorrah, and the Lord face to face talks to Abraham, and Abraham intercedes for Sodom and Gomorrah. How many remember the story? Okay, now the Lord goes down to Sodom and Gomorrah. Scroll all the way down, I believe it's going to be around verse 41. Now notice what happens here in verse 41. Is there a verse 41? Okay, go up just a little bit more. It might be 31. Let's see, keep going. I always forget this verse. Keep going up there. It's going to be a little bit more. Okay. Keep going, yeah, right there, 24. Had nothing to do with 41, but maybe there's a four in there. Okay, pray for your pastor. See, you're patient with me. Now, notice this. The Lord came with two angels. Two angels go to Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord talks to Abraham. What happens with the Lord? You follow the story. Now, the Lord goes where the angels are at to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. But watch. There's going to be another person called the Lord here. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur uh, on Sodom and Gomorrah from who? The Lord out of the heavens. Do you see why it's so important to understand when it says they have pierced me? They're going to see who they've pierced, and we're not talking about the Father. Because there is a group of people known as the Oneness Pentecostals that are going to say the name of God is Jesus, and he's the Father, he's the Son, the Holy Spirit. But this disproves the oneness belief, doesn't it? Just like we've shown that it, we can disprove the belief that Jesus was created. And let me just give you the two names. Jesus was created is an Arian belief from Arius in the 4th century. Jesus is the Father, Son, and Spirit is a Sibelius belief, belief from a guy named Sibelius. These two beliefs are the two major categories that people struggle with even as Christians understanding the Trinity. Even Christians sometimes think like an Arianist, like an Arianist, that Jesus was created. We don't want to think that way. That's incorrect. And then other times we think like a Sabellianist, like the oneness Pentecostals who have to baptize in Jesus' name because they believe Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Son, Jesus is the Holy Spirit. But what do we do with them? We show them a passage like this. And we show the Jews the same passage. And we say, why are there two persons by the name of Yahweh here? Why are there two walking? There's one on earth and there's one in heaven. And notice everybody tries to put Jesus down because he's always doing things on behalf of his father. Notice the father is the one doing it on behalf of him. It says that the Lord rained down fire and brimstone from the Lord in heaven. So the one on earth is the one making the call and saying, do this for me. So a lot of times people always say, well, it's always Jesus doing things of the Father. First of all, that would never change his nature. If in my house my children always do what I say, does that mean they're of a different nature? My children can always be under my authority but always share my nature. Different Christians debate on whether or not Jesus has always been under the authority of the Father as the Son for eternity or if that was something they took on in the beginning. We don't know because all we have is the beginning. We don't have what happened before the beginning. Amen? So at the beginning we know there are persons and they are submitting one to another. The Son is submitting to the Father, and the Spirit is submitting to the Father and Son. Now go to Isaiah chapter 6. In the beginning, we see that God creates the heavens and the earth. He doesn't share his glory with another. He's speaking to prophets. And we see that Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And there's seraphim with six wings. You know, we're going to learn about them in the book of Revelation. And they're calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. Now go to John chapter 12, verse 41. Here's the 41. Go to John chapter 12, verse 41. Who does John, the apostle, who we're getting the book of Revelation from, who does he say that Isaiah saw that day? He said he saw Jesus. Isaiah said this because he saw whose glory? 
Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Go back to Isaiah 6. Go back to it. Did you save it? Yeah. The whole earth is full of whose glory? His glory. Hmm. Did Isaiah see another Yahweh? Are there multiple Yahwehs that fill the earth with their glory? No. There is one Yahweh who is the Father, Son, and the Spirit. If you see the Son, you've seen the glory of Yahweh. If you've seen the Father, you've seen the glory of Yahweh. If you've seen the Holy Spirit, you've seen the glory of Yahweh. They all can share the same divine name and same divine attributes. Go to the notes now in Revelation. Why is this so important? Because Jesus is saying, I am coming with the clouds and you're going to see me, not just as a second created being, not just as an angel. You're going to see Yahweh coming to earth, fulfilling the promises that only Yahweh can keep. Somebody say, somebody say, so be it. Somebody say, amen. amen. Did you get it? That was our tough part for today. It gets easier now moving on. Now the Father speaks. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The first and last letter of the Greek alphabet, the Father now attributes to himself. But you're now going to notice in just a little bit, Jesus attributes the very same kind of title to himself. Let's keep going. I, John, your brother and companion in suffering and in kingdom, uh, excuse me, I, John, your brother in suffering, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that is ours in Jesus was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God, the testimony of Jesus. Remember we talked about that? He's there suffering, and we shouldn't think it's strange when we suffer because the greatest among us have suffered. Sometimes people think only bad things happen to bad people. That's superstition. Bad things happen to good people all the time. You are not supposed to look at a bad thing happening to somebody and go, they must be a bad person. A bad thing happening to them may be a part of what's going on in their life as a test or a trial, persecution. How many know they crucified Jesus and you don't do that to someone who wins the lottery? You don't do that to your favorite pop star, okay? They crucified Jesus because they didn't like him. And the Bible says we shouldn't think it's strange. Now, at the same time, we shouldn't walk around trying to be martyrs and say, I'm just suffering for Jesus because I'm a jerk. But we should not think it's strange. He's in Patmos, that island, and now watch what day he's worshiping on. Verse 10, on the Lord's day. What day? On the Lord's day I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Sometimes people say back to us, why don't you guys worship on the Sabbath? Why did Christians move their worship day from Saturday to Sunday? Some people try to come up with conspiracies and say, oh, it's because on Rome, in Rome, Sunday, the worship of the sun, and they wanted to worship the sun, and that's why he's called the sun, S-O-N, sun. They'll make all these conspiracies, baloney. That's not why it happened. The Bible tells us why it happened. The Jewish people were commanded to rest on the Sabbath, but Jesus rose on the Sunday, the first day of the week. The Christians wanted to start celebrating the new covenant on the first day of the week. Well, what about the Sabbath? We are not to keep the Sabbath, and that may sound weird to you, but one of the Ten Commandments are not commanded for Christians. You can read it. It took me a long time in first service or listen back. Hebrews chapter 4 said that the Sabbath was a shadow of us coming into Christ, resting from our dead works. So let me just go there because you're not going to believe me. I can just tell well, you're just tired. You're just tired. Either way, I'm going to go there. We're going to get really tired now, okay? <laughs> Half kid. Help us, Jesus. Let's do it. Hebrews chapter 4. I'm just going to point it out to you, and then I'm going to go to Colossians chapter 2. But I want you to see the importance of the Lord's Day. Somebody say the Lord's Day. Thank you. The Lord's Day has nothing to do with what the Romans did on a day for sun, the Sunday. No, it has nothing to do with that. Once again, Christians were being killed by the pagans. They weren't trying to appease them. They're not going to change their beliefs as they're getting crucified, as they're being set on fire. They're standing for what they believe. And they were good Jews, and they always went on the Sabbath. But now they understood 
what the Sabbath was a shadow of. Just like how dietary laws were a shadow of something. That's why we can eat lechon. Can I hear an amen to some barbecue? Amen. That's why we now can eat ribs. Okay, we can do all of this. It's not because God changed. It's because God changed his law. The law can change. A covenant can change, the Bible says, but not God's nature. And his morals don't change. It's not like in the Old Testament God's okay with lying and now he's not okay, he's not okay with lying. Now he says you can lie all you want. That's why we say homosexuality and those kind of things remain the same because they're moral laws. They're to the character of God. They're not civil laws. They're not ceremonial laws. They're not religious priestly laws. Are you tracking with me? The Sabbath law was a ceremonial law. You're supposed to remember this day of creation when God rested. And the Bible now says, scroll down for us, please. I think maybe to around 10 or 11. It now says what the Sabbath, keep going to 10 or 11, please. It says now what the, if you go back up to 10, thank you. It says, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. So what is the Sabbath rest now for us in the new covenant? Being saved and letting God save us, he does the work, I get the benefit. Amen? I'm more than a conqueror. I don't do what the conqueror does, but I get what he got. Amen? That's what it means to be more than a conqueror. That's what it means to rest. And so now go to Colossians chapter 2, around verse 16. The Bible's very clear. Don't let people judge you on Sabbath days, on special holidays. That's not for us. Now, in American Christian history, we have made popular Easter, we have made popular Christmas, and, and those things aren't found in the Bible either. But as long as you're not doing it unto a pagan God or for a pagan reason or you're like worshiping Santa, it's okay because it doesn't have a bearing on your spirituality. Where do we get that understanding from? This verse in, in chapter 2 of uh, Colossians, verse 16. It says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. So if now Jack Black or somebody on, on the Facebook feed wants to say, you Christians are hypocrites. You tell us not to have homosexual, uh, homosexual relationships, but you still eat pork. We bring it right back to them. That has changed, and no one is to judge us on what we eat or drink. Or with regard to a religious festival. You're not supposed to be judged on whether or not you keep any of those religious festivals the Jews had. Or a new moon celebration. How many know they celebrated the new moon? I mean, that's not a big deal to us, but that was a, that was a part of their, uh, their covenant. Or a what? Or a what? Sabbath day. These, all of those things, dietary laws, religious festival laws, new moon celebration, Sabbath laws, those are all shadows of things that were to come. The reality, however, is found where? In Christ. So when someone points this out to us, well, you're not a good Christian, be like, no, you're not a good reader. You don't know how to read. <laughs> Let me read this for you. Well, you pick and choose, you pick it. No, no, I didn't pick and choose nothing. The one who gave us the first covenant picked and choose what we would do in the second covenant. How many know that the first grade teacher, if they were the same in the second grade as the second grade teacher, can pick what they want to bring over? So let's say in first grade, they tell all the students, line up in a single line, boy, girl, boy, girl. Probably wouldn't do that anymore because they don't want to assume anybody's gender, but you know that used to happen. Boy, girl, boy, girl. How many know in second grade, if it's the same teacher, they can decide whether or not that rule applies? They may just say, hey, you know what, line up orderly, but you don't have to go boy, girl, boy, girl. How many know the first grade teacher can go, here's your lunch. We give you a lunch. But now a second grade teacher, if it's the same one, a second grade could say, you can bring your lunch. How many know the character of the teacher has not changed, but the rules have changed? How many know that? Covenantal rules that are not to do with morals and the character of God change. 
Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His character does not change, but does his covenants change? Absolutely. And you can show that to any Christian trying to put the law on you. Ask them what was, what was Noah's diet. Noah was told after he came after the, ark, after the ark, he could eat all the animals. So even then they could eat all the animals. They didn't have all the ceremonial laws. And the Bible is very clear that Moses and his generation was the first to get all 613 laws. Sometimes you'll talk to a Seventh-day Adventist and they'll try to say, oh, they were there. Those 613 laws were there. They'll be like, you'd be making up stuff. It's, you're making up stuff. Are you reading the white part of the page? Because I'm reading the black ink part of the page. The white part of the page, you're filling in whatever you want to put in there, okay? But the, the black part of the ink literally says what they were commanded to do. It started off with offerings. It started off with sacrifices. And then moved to sacrifices and, and these kinds of things. And then it moved to the different morals they were to keep and dietary laws. And eventually, by the time of Moses, God fills in all the blanks. But, but when Jesus comes, he doesn't, he doesn't do away with it. He fulfills it. That's why I use first and second grade. He passes first, and he says, now we're going to second. Amen? Going back now to the notes, Revelation. I'm here learning something today. Amen. If we could go back to Revelation, please, we'll see where we are at. I'll keep going to the paper Bible. How many glad paper Bibles still work? All right. Love you back there. Okay, you got it up. Okay. On the Lord's Day. How many just learned something about the Lord's Day again? Is it good that we're taking some detours here? Amen. On the Lord's Day, on the Lord's Day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergam, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Right here, we don't know if that's the angel speaking or Jesus. My Bible has it as Jesus. Others, you know, in the... The Greek, there is no red letter, so we wouldn't know. If it's not Jesus, it's an angel speaking, and then as he turns around, he sees Jesus next to the angel. If it is Jesus speaking, he hears him, and he turns around, and he looks at him. Pretty simple, right? Verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. So here's our first symbol. Everybody go, ooh, seven golden lampstands. What does it mean? Seven mansions in heaven, seven theocratic rulers that will be the kings of the, the ages. Let's keep going. We'll find out later. And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. Remember the term Son of Man? It's a divine title, isn't it? Dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were burning and blazing like fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. Everybody go, ooh, another symbol. What does it mean? And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was shining as bright as the sun in all of its brilliance. Who is that? We know that's Jesus now. And the description here is to show us how powerful he is. Sadly, there's a group called the black Hebrew Israelites who now want to say Jesus is black because he's got bronze. And you white people don't have no bronze. Look at you. But you know what? You put me in the sun enough, I will turn bronze. I will. And then they say, nobody got woolly hair like black people, so we got woolly hair. Woolly. But you notice it says it's white like wool. It doesn't say it's woolly. Now, 
I, I just got to give it up to anybody who wants to try that hard and say, hey, man, you did look, you did look hard. But what does his face look like? The son, is he a Pokemon character now? I mean, you're trying hard, but you got to keep going with this thing now. What does this guy look like that you you saying? But I will say this. Jesus, more than likely, is lighter, uh, darker than me, lighter than someone from Africa. But I don't care if he's red, black, pink, or purple. As long as he died for me, I'm worshiping him. Amen. <laughs> John is not falling down, checking where he came from on this earth. He's worshiping him. But if you notice this, this could apply really to any cultural group because you put any cultural group of skin in fire, it's going to start turning colors, okay? And so his, his skin looks like bronze. And like I said, there's a lot of cultures, Latinos, uh, Asians, uh, Italians, a lot of cultures that turn bronze quite quickly. Uh, generally, that is true uh, among those from the African descent, do have more of a bronze tone in, in general, and that's beautiful. You're black and beautiful, amen? You're black and beautiful, I praise God. And, and one brother said, once you go black, you never go back. That's right. But, but a true story to put, to, to put myself in here. I did go black and I went back and I married a Greek person. But, but I did. I'm getting a little sassy now. But you, you don't live in New Orleans without dating some sisters, if you know what I'm saying. So I dated some sisters. I dated some sisters. My children, my children might come out a lot different if I, if I had some children with them. But you would still be beautiful. You would be beautiful. Yeah, we always used to talk about that, too. Oh, babies, it looks so good. They'll have your hair. They're going to have my skin. We used to talk like that. I literally, I can still remember her name, though. I dated African-Americans, but I also dated an African, Africa. I dated an African. Her name was Olubukola, Olubukola from Nigeria. Beautiful. And, I, and I, I'm just telling you, dark and beautiful and all of that. So if you're wondering, like, what shades of African-American was or African, I dated light skin all the way to dark from Africa. Amen. So do I get some props. Some of you just like, let's move on, Pastor. Oh, I get some props. Okay. Okay. <laughs> And yes, to show you how bad I was, even as a Christian, I was, because the Bible says, you know, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. I was on the search. I was on the search, y'all. I also dated Asian. I also dated Latino. I also dated European. I dated every person that came up. I dated online, too. So I dated every person who came up on my feed that I thought could meet the need. But I ended up with Greek. I ended up with Greek. Amen. Praise God. That's, that's where it ended. But it, <laughs> we're so happy for you, Pastor. Amen. I got me one. That's why I always used to tell my friends because they would say, man, who is going to love you? And I said, listen, I don't need 100 to love me. I just need one. All I need is God's miracle in one person. Just God, just do it one time. Give them a special heart for me, Jesus. Touch their heart. Blind their eyes, Jesus, and have them fall in love with me. Oh, thank you, Jesus. So we don't know. We don't know if he is going to retain a color of a culture of actual skin. We know his description is of power, of, is of glory, the sword coming out. The word that comes from him is a weapon against the enemy. And we know that he shines like he's in the sun because he created the sun. But now notice this in verse 17. John falls before him dead. But now he places his hand on him and comforts him. Our Jesus is as powerful as you can possibly imagine. He's the all-powerful, almighty God. 
And yet he is our Lord and Savior. He loves us. He cares about us. This is what we're supposed to get here out of the revelation is that John may be suffering and feeling he's alone and that the enemy seems like to have the upper hand. Nero's acting crazy and Christians are dying left and right. But here is Jesus in his glory and he's standing with his church. Amen. He's standing with his church. The church has never been alone. Jesus is with them and Jesus is not a baby in a manger. John needs to get this image in his mind. He's a conquering king. So he falls at his feet like dead. Then he places his right hand on him and he says, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. Remember the father said, I'm Alpha and Omega. And that's cool, playing off the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. But the literal phrase, first and last, is used by Yahweh in the Old Testament. Jesus says, I'm just like my father. I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, John, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. What, what Jesus is saying is what we're afraid of, of death and the devil. He says, I got it all under control. He says, write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. And the reason why I was like, ooh, seven stars and seven lampstands. Notice this principle of interpretation that almost every time we see a symbol in the book of Revelation, they're going to tell us what it means. How many are happy we have a good Jesus? What's the parable about the sower? What's that about, Jesus? Well, the sower is the one sowing the word of God. The grounds are your heart. He tells them what it means, doesn't he? Our Jesus hasn't changed. Look at right here. You want to know what those things were? He's going to tell us. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the first mysterious sign that we get, Jesus takes away all the mystery and goes, mystery solved. Okay, you guys don't have to be weird and fight about it in churches and try to get all deep. I'm going to tell you what it is, and this is where I want you to see in the book of Revelation, nine times out of ten. Matter of fact, I can't think of one that won't be interpreted. Every sign will be interpreted to us to know what it means. That's how good our Jesus is. And in closing today, I want to go back to the first and the last. As Vinny comes, please. Can you imagine being John? Exiled on the Isle of Patmos, most of your heroes are already dead. Your older brother is already dead. Your, the disciples you lived with are dead. Even your church is suffering. The people around you are suffering. And now you see Jesus. And what does he say about himself? I'm the first and I'm the last. How do you think John would have taken it that, that day? I think John would have said, you know what? I can't imagine a time when I wasn't alive and where things were not going, when things were bad. And I can't imagine a time when I was alive when things were good. I wasn't around in the Garden of Eden. I wasn't around during those other times. But you know what? John now can sit back and go, but my Jesus was around before we fell, before we went into sin, before all these curses came on the earth. My Jesus goes back to the beginning. If you today are going through something, just put your mind on that for a moment. My Jesus predates every problem in my life. My Jesus was there when everything was right. My Jesus was there when heaven and earth was all in order and the kingdom of God was with the kingdom of men. I am not going through something that he does not know about. He's been here this whole time. That should bring us peace. The second thing is that it says he's the last. How many know that John could be scared, that he could be looking at all the situations he's facing going, how is this going to work out? 
How is this going to work out for my good? But he could focus then on Jesus, who is literally standing at the finish line going, hey, I'm already here at the finish line, and we win. We win. I can just imagine Jesus like I would be with my child learning how to walk, going, come on, make it right to me. You're coming right to me. I got you. You are going to make it. I'm not going to let you fall. If we get what God was saying to John in our generation, if we can see the revelation of who Jesus is, then we won't be afraid of the things we're suffering in the middle. In this, in this time of the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil, for he is with us and his rod and his, his staff will comfort us. Amen. Jesus was at the beginning of America. He's going to be at the end of America. Trust in him to be your good shepherd right now. He's got this under control. Amen. God was there at the beginning of your family, and when you'll have a family no more, and we pass and all get to be with our family in heaven. He'll walk us through these times as the good shepherd. And I could just see him holding up those keys just with a big smile on his face saying, don't be afraid of death, John. I got the authority. Don't be afraid of hell, John. I got the authority. You're going to rise again, and the devil can't have a hold on you. We have to begin to see Jesus as the first and the last. We have to see Jesus now, watch, as the one who's holding the angels of the churches as well as the churches. If you remember the word angel just means messenger. There are angelic heavenly messengers. They don't have wings. When they come, angel uh, Gabriel, angel Michael, they come like us, and they're messengers. Seraphim and cherubim have the wings, okay? And then there's messengers on earth. There's messengers in heaven, and there's messengers on earth. Most theologians believe he's speaking to the pastors, the messengers on earth. Get it. Come on, let's get it today. These, these pastors, they've been through so much. I've been a pastor that's been through some stuff. Listen to me. All I would want to know if I was going through those kinds of things as I've gone through now is that Jesus has got me in his hands. That's what Jesus is telling John. John, you go tell each one of those leaders of those churches, I got them in my hands, and they are like fire in my hands right now. They are burning bright like stars, and I got my hands on them. And then he says to them, and I want you to know, John, that I got their churches in my hand. They might be being called a cult. They might be being persecuted even by their own family and friends. But they're not alone, John. I want you to tell them, John, tell those seven churches, I'm holding you right like this in my hand. I got you. That's what we need in this generation is a revelation of Jesus, that he's the first and the last. He's got his pastors in his hand. He's got his churches in his hand. Scroll up for me, brother. And he's going to bring it all together for his good. Come on, let's see verse 20, please. He's got it for his good. The Bible says that he's got the church in his hand. He's got you and I in his hand. Come on, somebody say he's got you and me, brother, in his hands. Somebody say he's got the whole world in his hand. I wish I could get somebody to help me preach. Can you scroll up for me, please? He's got the whole world in his hands, and he's coming back for his church. He's got you and me, brother, in his hands. He's got you and me, sister, in his hands. He's got you and me, church, in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world. 
Come on, would you stand up and give it up for Jesus today? Hallelujah! Hallelujah, Jesus! Band and altar workers, would you come, please? I just want to pray and think on that. Raise your hands if you can and just say, Lord, I honor you today. I honor you, Jesus, as the one who is the first and the last, who was once dead but now alive, who has all the authority. We're going to get to the worship songs of the Lamb pretty soon. But I don't know about you. I can't even go this far without worshiping him. i got to take a praise break right now. i got to take a worship break right now. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus yet as your personal Lord and Savior, just come on down as we're worshiping and praying. And we'll pray for you. If you're going through something where you can't see the, the beginning or the end, you're in the middle of something right now, come down here. We'll pray for you. But the rest of us, come on, just raise up your hands and just say his name, Jesus. Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I need you. Jesus. Somebody say his name. Jesus. Holy and anointed one. name again, Jesus. Jesus. Nobody like my Jesus. Jesus. Risen and exalted one. Risen and exalted one. Jesus. Your name. Say it up today, Jesus. I love you. Your name is like nobody like my Jesus. Your spirit is like water to my soul. Your word is a lamp to my feet. Come on, let's just say that, Jesus. I love. our Jesus, the bright and morning star, the fairest of 10,000, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the word of the Lord made flesh, Jehovah our provider, Jehovah our healer, Jehovah our banner, our victory, Jehovah our peace, Jehovah our shepherd, God with us, Emmanuel, the Lamb of God, hallelujah, hallelujah. 
We give you honor, Jesus. We lay our lives before you. We're living in scary times, Jesus. So we need you more than we've ever needed you before. Comfort our hearts. Make us brave, oh Lord. Hallelujah. Let's sing this before we dismiss second service. We'll dismiss in just a moment, but let's worship him. If you need prayer, come on up for anything going on in your life today.